This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this program, I've got Dr. Mark Rutland with us, and we're going to be discussing the work of the Holy Spirit in everyday life. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Hey, everybody. Welcome, one and all. We have an exciting program for you today. Before we dive into the program, I want to let you know we have got, I think, just the week left on our course WSSM, the Word and Spirit School of Ministry. If you want to register, I think this is like your last week. Uh, registration ends 25th, if I'm, my memory serves me correct. Uh, we have 130 students registered for WSSM, which is nuts. It is the biggest registration we've had. Uh, we're actually sometimes having a hard time like making sure that we have enough small group leaders to facilitate all the people that are coming in. So uh, we've got to close registration. We might even have to cap it. So if you're interested, make sure to check out the uh, website, theremnantradio.com, or in the description of of this video, you will see a link to the newsletter. It's the best way to stay up to date with all the things that we've got going on. When we come out with courses, we have discounts, uh, Patreon, all the different activities that we're doing, speaking engagements, all of that can be found on the newsletter. So if you're not aware uh, when we're coming out with content or when we're traveling, you definitely want to be a part of the newsletter so that you can see all of that stuff coming down the pike when it comes down the pike. Uh, I want to, man. You were watching. That is that is the risk of having a live show that, was, that you accidentally hit the intro button twice. It's that was kind the of wrong embarrassing, button, but 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 it happens nevertheless. Michael, how are you doing there, man? Oh, um, you know, I'm I'm doing all right. I, it's, I'm saved and uh, doing good. That that is half so, the battle. That that is half. So how are you doing? Better, better than just saved. Uh, let me take this opportunity to turn it over to uh, Dr. Rutland. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with yourself, uh, with you, tell us a little about yourself and your ministry before we dive into our subject today. Well, I'm I'm also saved, so Praise I guess God. we're on Praise we're on equal the footing there. Yeah, I, um, I rather than go through uh, 50 years of ministry, what I'm doing right now, uh, I'm the executive director of the National Institute of Christian Leadership. Anybody can look me up at drmarkrutland.com or go to the go to the ministry that I founded called Global Servants and uh, look it up and find out probably more than you want to know. Okay, well, tell us a little about uh, your work with the Holy Spirit. I mean, you've been doing uh, you know series in your church, kind of working through the kind of everyday uh, participation with the Spirit in everyday life. I'd love to hear what sparked your interest in the subject. Tell us a little about that. Well, I, uh, I did not grow up in any kind of a spirit-filled environment. My family were marginal uh, Christians at best, let alone uh, in the spirit-filled community. They were four or five time a year Methodists. Uh, in high school, I felt uh, a, a 
what I identified as a call to the ministry. I went into the Methodist ministry and um, did the very best with it I could. I was never off into any kind of crazy uh, liberal stuff, but I, I was educated in a evangelical uh, cessationism and uh, uh, assumed whether I was actually taught it or not, I assumed an adversarial relationship with the things of the spirit, the gifts of the spirit. Um, and uh, it was a pretty barren uh, first seven years of my church. And then uh, after seven years in the Methodist ministry, I came into a full experience with the Holy Spirit that illumined my life and transformed my ministry and healed my marriage. And, uh, and it was a transformative experience in every way. And since then, I've just uh, taken every occasion possible to preach and teach on the person and work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, so Mark, could you tell us a little bit about that experience? What was the setting? What were you doing? What was the environment around you? Did the Holy Spirit just like you're walking down the street and just like smacked you? Were you at a church service when it happened? Uh, and just kind of walk us through that into how it played out in those various areas of your life. Okay. Um, I had uh, gone through a really really, really dark time. Um, I was the associate pastor. It was a wonderful job. I was the associate pastor of a very large uh, United Methodist Church in the suburbs of Atlanta. And all of the um, emptiness of my own life and the frustration in marriage and everything else and struggles with depression. As a result of it, the, the lead pastor and I were uh, at, a, at a pretty tough intersection between the two of us. And uh, he was a, a charismatic uh, Methodist, and he was very interested in all that, the things he went to full gospel businessmen's and all the things that went with 70s style charismatics. And I, I was pretty contemptuous of it. There was a conference uh, with some guest speakers, one from Kentucky and one from California, and he basically forced me to attend it. I was very angry and rebellious. I was 28, and uh, I think it sort of goes with being 28, in addition to being uh, opposed to the things of the Spirit. And uh, so I was very, very upset at being made to be at this conference, and I was very um, put off by the speakers, the choices. The only people that were allowed to attend, were, to attend were United Methodist preachers, 150 or so Methodist ministers. No laymen were allowed to attend. It was called Power for Ministry Today. And, um, and I, was, uh, I was just angry at being made to be there, uh, trying to find anything that anybody said that I disagreed with. And I had a four credit A at the postgraduate level in pneumatology. I thought, you know, they're not going to put anything over on me. But uh, I was, um, when you to use your term, was I smacked by the Holy Spirit? I guess in a very real sense, I was. It was, a, it was an explosive situation in, the, in that conference. And, and um, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't give other people's testimonies. So I don't know what happened in 149 other Methodist preachers, but it was... An infilling, explosive, empowering, uh, 
dramatic um, smack, if you prefer that. And uh, so that's the context. I'm interested in that because you, you said, hey, you know, I've got I've got this this graduate level education. You know, I'm like I'm I've, I've got a really firm grasp on who the Holy Spirit is. But then you also said, like, I was pretty opposed to the, the work of the spirit. Now, if I'm going to kind of read in between the lines, it sounds like you're saying I had a very strong um, uh kind of emotional stir when I see the kinds of charismatic activities that were taking place. Is that, is that, is that a fair assessment is to say that the person of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, as you understood, it was something you could get down with. It was, it was the kind of expression or maybe even cultural baggage that charismaticism had packaged, uh, the, 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 the supernatural. And, and I guess I'm asking that because I think other people who are hearing your testimony might say, well, I don't have a problem with the Holy Spirit, right? Like, because I'm right. And I got all this doctrine and, you know, like, I, I don't have a yeah. problem. Can you maybe speak into that situation uh, for maybe maybe first of all describe what it what you mean by you were opposed and would you describe yourself then as being opposed to the work of the spirit um, so that we can maybe identify some of that? Yeah, um, so I was not as put off by the accoutrements of charismatic expression as I was by the theology itself. I, I had a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I, you know, understood the Trinity. It's just that my doctrine of the Holy Spirit was right. It was just dead right. I, mm -hmm. I saw the Holy Spirit as I was taught that he was the third person of the Trinity. He was the Lord, the giver of life, but Amen. that everything of uh, personal empowerment, anything of subsequent experiences of grace beyond uh, the Holy Spirit. You know, the footnotes of the Schofield Bible in Acts chapter 2 say um, that subsequent to Pentecost, that no believer ever need uh, seek the Holy Spirit again. We're automatically and fully and finally filled. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I, I believed that the gifts of the Spirit had disappeared with the death of the last apostle. And um, so it was It was not really that I was, um, I think I used some of those things that you're mentioning as an excuse, but really I, I was um, theologically persuaded. Opposed, yeah. Uh, 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 you, you understand the term cessationism, I, I, of course. that those things had ceased with yeah. the, with the yeah. death of the last apostle. And that's something we've talked about a lot on this show is the, the kind of context that a lot of evangelicals are just kind of, they're in this water of Protestantism, which we're, we're hardcore Protestants. We love Protestant Reformation. Um, but starting with Calvin, then Middleton, and then B.B. Warfield, and the kind of evolution of cessationism that we have today, it's just kind of in the water, as it were, because the Roman Catholic Church was performing miracles, right? Whether they were legitimate or not is to be determined, but they were performing these signs and the Protestants were saying, well, well, the Catholics were saying, well, how are you performing your signs, right? Like, and, and then Calvin and is going, I don't, we're not performing signs, uh, so you must have it, false signs. And if there were signs, yeah, they, they, they accepted the premise that Ca the Rome said that our miracles, our supernatural power, prophecy and healings, they give a validity to our tradition. Um, and, and they give they give a kind of binding authority that 
proves that the church has this power. And what was the problem with the Protestants is they accepted that premise. Um, they should have rejected the premise altogether and said, no, supernatural miracles are a thing, but they don't they don't validate your tradition if it nullifies the word of God. The word is the word. We don't go beyond what's written. Uh, you know, the scriptures are the word of God that we judge everything by, but prophecy is to be tested and weighed. So like they, they should have responded in a different way, but because they pushed so back against it, this doctrine of cessationism emerges. And, and it seems as if pro a lot of Protestant theology has been, this, the pneumatology has been truncated to inspiration of the spirit, the work of the spirit in salvation. Yes. Uh, but man, when you really look at the New Testament, the way that the Bible uses language of the Holy Spirit, both Old and New Testament, it is overwhelmingly uh, on the prophetic side, on the empowerment side, on the healing side. Uh, yes, there are re references in the scriptures of the Holy Spirit inspiring and carrying along the prophets. Uh, there's definitely verses of the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration and the washing of the word, right? Like there's, there's definitely uh, language of Holy Spirit for regeneration and inspiration, but the vast majority. Um, uh, Michael, do you remember the, the scholar that we we interviewed, I think he right before he passed, and we were talking about his statistical analysis of the New Testament and the Holy Spirit. Do, do you know? Do you remember who I'm talking about? Uh, Ruthven. I think John it is Ruthven, Ruthven. John Mark Ruthven. Uh, yeah. Not to be confused with Dr. Mark Rutland. Uh, John Mark <laughs> Ruthven. Uh, uh, very, very similar in names, but uh, yeah, he did a statistical analysis of the New Testament, and he found that the like 80 or 90 percent was a very high percentage had to do with the gifts of the Spirit. I think that's very, very interesting, M Michael. I, I kind of gave commentary after my question. It's, it's totally your floor, man. Oh, no, you're good. You're good. I, I actually want to come back to the experience uh, that you had, Mark. And I'm curious how you would characterize it, wh whether you would call it a baptism in the Holy Spirit or of the Holy Spirit, or <laughs> does the preposition even matter to you? Or is it a filling of the Holy Spirit? Or is that kind of the same thing? Because for our viewers, uh, some of our viewers don't realize that there are the different ways in which people view that, where you have uh, sec some Christians that view it as sort of like, you know, the, the so-called second blessing theology, where it's like, hey, you get saved, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but somewhere down the line, you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, and usually baptized and filled are used interchangeably. And, uh, and that's where you experience this transformation that lasts for the rest of your life, uh, or <laughs> probably the rest of your life. Anyway, it's a second blessing. Then, uh, then the other side, and this is the more conservative evangelical camps, as well as the third wave charismatic like John Wimber and those who kind of follow that, uh, are those who say, well, the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens immediately at conversion. And, uh, and so whether you're speaking in tongues, whether, you know, don't, whether you're a cessationist, when you're saved, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we were all baptized in one spirit into the body of Christ. And so uh, anything subsequent to that might be an experience of the Spirit, but they wouldn't call it a baptism in the Spirit. So which of those two camps would you fall into, and how would you label the experience that you had? Well, I'm not very, frankly, I'm not very concerned with the label. Um, if, uh, if, you take, if one takes a sponge and plunges it into a bucket of water, is the water in the sponge or is the sponge in the water? And uh, the obvious answer is yes. So <laughs> if, one is, if one is plunged into the Holy Spirit, i.e. a baptism, if you wanna use that term, if one is immersed into the Holy Spirit, then like a sponge, the Holy Spirit also fills. 
So one is immersed in the Holy Spirit. So if your theology rests on prepositions, it's frail indeed. So uh, I wouldn't say it's a baptism with the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, or in this Holy Spirit. Is it filling? So one might make a distinction between what happened in the second chapter of Acts and then what happens after the first wave of persecution in Acts chapter 4 and 5. And it says when Peter and John returned to their company, they all prayed and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So hadn't they been filled on the day of Pentecost? So I think there are subsequent experiences of the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm. That which I experienced that day um, was a was a, a, a such a thunderous decision uh, uh, experience. It was so huge um, to me. It had more of the characteristic of the experience of Acts chapter two. It was it was explosive. It was transforming, and uh, there was there were healing aspects to it. I had. I struggled so with some levels of emotional darkness, depression, and suicidal tendencies, and our marriage was a wreck. So it was a, uh, an empowering experience. It was a healing experience. Um, gifts of the Spirit that I had opposed, and not, not opposed in the sense that I thought they were wrong, I thought they were gone. Mm-hmm. It's not that I, not that I didn't understand the, the gifts of the spirit. I, they're, they're listed. It is that I thought they were gone. So the first experience that I ever had, I didn't have any cultural expression with the gifts of the spirit. Mm-hmm. I never heard them. I never heard say tongues or a word of knowledge or things like that. So the first, the first encounter I had with it was, was so um, personal and explosive. So suppose one is a paleontologist and preaches for or teaches at the university level for years and years that there's no such thing as dinosaurs, that they've all passed away. And then one comes home and in one's living room, there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, at some point, um, theology gives way to experience. and. and and I, I know I know that's frail, but I only can say um, Paul uh, in Acts chapter 19, when Paul arrives at Ephesus, he doesn't ask, what do you believe to be true about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? He says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you first believed? So his question presupposes some kind of re- reception experience. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you first believed? And, uh, and he expected that. When Peter and John arrive at um, uh, Samaria following the, the evangelical outpouring there, the signs and wonders and the conversion, it says when Peter and John arrived, Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, when Peter and John arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them, only they were living as men and women baptized in the name of Jesus. And when they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. So all the verbs change in a matter of a couple of verses. They prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not fallen on them. And they laid hands on them and they did receive. So 
I, I, it's just not something I, I, I see worth quibbling over. What I would say is, are you, it, to anybody, are you satisfied with the level of the empowerment and the personal encounter with the Holy Spirit beyond doxological theology? Yes, I believe mm-hmm. in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. If you don't have that, it seems to me to be an, a New Testament um, expectation. Yeah, that 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 one would have that infilling, plunging, baptizing, empowering experience. Even the verbs in the New Testament change. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus. Think... Jesus is Jesus is the one who uses the verb baptize. Mm-hmm. Uh, and John the Bab- John Baptist uses the word baptize. Another cometh after me, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to loosen. He shall indeed baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. So the first person to preach the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a Baptist. Um, so to me, those things are obfuscations. Uh, to me, the question is, have, have, are you walking in a satisfactory level of personal empowerment and giftedness that seems to even vaguely be reminiscent of the New Testament. I, I love that articulation because it really places the the onus on the satisfaction of like where, where the believer's at. And and I, I think that's super helpful because, you know, I, I we did missions recently. Well, not missions. We we went to Hawaii. It's not missions. We were training missionaries on Hawaii. And uh, we were <laughs> last week. So I'm, I'm there and I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. And I, I've got people from different denominations that are all present that I'm training. And I just go, hey, um, let's, let's, cause we got to this part about the Holy spirit and the empowerment of the spirit. And I was just like, they were asking, but, but don't I have the spirit when I get saved and, and, and why would I need more of the spirit? And like, so I just kind of, I just kind of took a pause and said, okay, we just studied the uh, doctrine of God. We did theology proper. We, we really walked through the Nicene creed. So you're, you're, I heard you say, you know, proceeds from the father and the son and worship glorified earlier. So I know that you're, 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 you're smelling what we're stepping in. So, so we're walking through this and we get to the part about the Holy spirit. I just talk about how the Holy spirit is, um, you know, omnipresent, right? We've already studied God's attributes. He's omnipresent. So the Holy Spirit's everywhere. But wasn't the Holy Spirit in the temple in the way that he wasn't in the rest of Israel? And they're like, oh yeah, absolutely. And like, wasn't the Holy Spirit in the Holy of Holies in a way that he wasn't in the rest of the temple? Oh yeah, because the only high priest could go in there. It's like, okay, cool. And then wasn't the Holy Spirit in the Holy of Holies or even on the Ark of the Covenant in an even more unique way than he was in the rest of the world? And they're like, yeah. And it's like, okay, so with this kind of concentric circle, we've already determined we can get more of the spirit. There is more of the spirit, even though he is everywhere. And and just to make the kind of Acts 2, they receive the spirit. John 20, 22, it looks like there's some kind of reception of the spirit. Um, the, then, and what Acts 4, they receive more of the spirit again. And to say that this has to do more with a relationship and participation with the Holy Spirit. And I, I'd be interested because you, you mentioned a kind of moral reformation, almost like a sanctification, it sounds like, from this encounter. Um, and and oftentimes we even divorce those two things uh, in relationship to manifestations for power, like spiritual gifts, and then sanctification as like a separate thing. Do you find that these two things happen at the same time often, or are they a one or, or the other? You know, I'm, I'm partially asking because I see a lot of people walking in power that's relative, and then their characters maybe not caught up. So, so I'm I'm curious about how some of that fleshes out in your mind. Well, I don't think there's any way to even understand the Holy Spirit apart from His name. I mean, He's the Holy Spirit, 
And Amen. Romans refers to him uh, as the spirit of holiness that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So I, um, I had a seminary professor who was very much of the Wesleyan um, sanctification concept. He was very, it was, it was, he was an odd character to me because he was extremely opposed to the charismatic and Pentecostal expressions but he believed in, a, in an explicit second work of sanctification. And he said, uh, basically, that after that sanctifying experience, it becomes impossible for you to sin. Well, I've, I've pretty well proven that's wrong. Um, so <laughs> tested that theory, did you? <laughs> that, I, 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 what I would say is the, that experience of, of power in the person of the Holy Spirit must have implications of the character of the Spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. So uh, it, it may be that there are, if there are subsequent experiences of power, there may be also subsequent experiences of sanctifying grace. But um, I'm not saying that when one receives um, a dramatic empowerment of the Holy Spirit, a baptism of the Spirit, an infilling, whatever, I whatever you want to call that. I'm not saying that God has done everything in that life in terms of holiness that will ever get done. But don't tell me nothing got done. That I don't believe that an empowering experience with the Holy Spirit can come and there is no ramification of the character and nature of the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of holiness. So... I, I believe in the ongoing work. So are we sanctified? Are we being sanctified? Or are we going to be sanctified entirely in heaven? And I say, I say yes, all of that is happening. I'm, hmm. I'm, I believe in the, in the work of the Holy Spirit for power and personal power and personal holiness. But it's, it's all both, it can be an event, a dramatic event but if, if that's the only thing God's going to do in your life for the rest of your life, then why didn't he just take you to heaven right then? So the, the dramatic event of immersion into the Holy Spirit for power and for giftedness and for sanctifying grace leads on from glory unto glory, unto glory, unto glory, unto glory, unto glory. Okay. So Jack Deere teaches, and, and I do too, so, but so I, I guess I could just say I teach this, but uh, I want to know whether you agree with this or disagree with this. That uh, in the book of Acts, it looks like the filling of the Holy Spirit, which uses a different Greek word than the Ephesians 5 18 famous passage, but throughout the book of Acts, it's uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, looks more like boldness and power. Uh, and you see that kind of all going together. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And uh, and, and so, and, and then you'll also see miracles in that context too. Paul's filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 13, and pronounces blindness temporarily over Elimas, the sorcerer, and the proconsul comes to faith. And so you see these kinds of things in conjunction with the filling of the Holy Spirit is, uh, is the empowerment uh, for proclaiming the gospel. Uh, whereas in uh, Paul's writing in Ephesians 5, don't get drunk, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And then the participles that follow, filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks to God the Father for everything, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And as you can go on into uh, the submission of wives and to servants and children and uh, and but it looks like a moral reformation of having a, a heart that is submissive in whatever relationship that becomes appropriate. And, and so on one side, you have the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is power for boldness and miracles and proclamation of the gospel. That's Luke. And then Paul, there's another filling of the Holy Spirit that manifests as vertical worship and psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and life reform and loving one another and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So do you see a difference or is this just like splitting hairs? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. There is certainly I'm not, a difference. I'm not offended if you say I hate your interpretation, Michael. No, I don't. I don't <laughs> I say, hate I can, anything. <laughs> I can verify no. that he, he won't be offended. I say it all the time. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's not that simple, boys. It's, uh, uh, look, there's a difference between a kiss and a hug. The the most inexperienced necker that's ever taken part knows the difference. <laughs> but but in the right context, couldn't they happen at the same time? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. so take for example the Pentecost experience of Simon Peter. Okay. It was on the surface for empowerment. It, it is Peter that stands up and preaches the, the Pentecostal sermon with, with tremendous boldness, right? But uh -huh. what was Peter's but what was Peter's long-term personal ethical struggle? It was self-preservation. That's uh -huh. why he denied Jesus. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's an ongoing struggle in Peter's life. And but there seems to be an experience of empowerment that deals with the ethical weakness, the moral weakness, if you will, of self-preservation, because there's no hint of it when he stands up and preaches on the day of Pentecost. So was he sanctified beyond the reach of the sin of self-interest, or was he empowered to preach boldly? And my answer would be he certainly was. That's good. Okay. I'd be... Let me let me let me ask on terms of like means of grace, because, you know, I've got people who would think in terms of like, well, what you're describing, this kind of second blessing experience creates two classes of Christians, you know, the haves and the have nots. It creates distinctions within the body. You know, some say I follow, you know, the, the Paul Apollos, rich and poor, but like Corinthians is about the gifted and ungifted, too. Right. Like that creates a division in the church. Um, and and some would say, well, what you're what you're calling for is a you know, you need to have this experience. And if you don't have this experience, you're a second class citizen. How would you pastor people who feel like that is one of the things that you're calling them to? Because I would tell them, hey, you need to get around the Bible. I would have no problem saying you need to get around communion every Sunday. I've got no problem saying you need to gather together with the saints and not forsake the sacred assembly because there are means of grace that are present that enrich the life of the believer. And yeah, there are haves and have nots. There are people who have gathered around the word of God and have been sanctified and those who have not gathered around the word have been sanctified. So if you want to think in those terms, sure. But but I do I, I do sense that there is an actual real, authentic, legitimate concern that we could create a must-have experience that some people don't have. And how do you pastor through that? 
Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a practical and pastoral question, and and I see the point. There. Uh, so <laughs> there is actually there are there are actually uh, haves and have-nots. That's that's a fact. Um, the the subtler ramification of that is that those is the attitude of possessiveness and self glorification of anybody that considers themselves to be one of the haves. So there, there are people that, that have greater, further, deeper, higher experiences with God that I've, I've never known, never experienced and, and could only, could only in my most um, glorious times of prayer ever hope to ever even experience. And there, they live there on a daily basis. They have things I don't have. However, if they, lorded over me in terms of that, then they are not where they think they are. So the pastoral question is, is there more for you? Quit, don't, don't measure yourself against me because I don't measure myself against you. We all fall short of the measure of Christ. But is there more for you of holiness, of peace, of power, of giftedness, of grace, of truth? Is there more for you? That keep pressing on, keep pressing in. If somebody else has more, it doesn't make you, it's, it's not a, not a limited pie. It's not a zero based sum. There's more for everybody. And somebody else has more that inspires. What about the life, the prayer life of David Brainerd? <laughs> the prayer life of David Brainerd could on the one hand, inspire me on the other hand, it makes me think, Oh God, I'll never pray again. I don't, I don't know anything <laughs> about prayer, you know? And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to live intimidated by the prayer life of David Brainerd. I'm going to live saying I may not ever have what he had, but I surely I can have more than I have. Mm. And I, again, I, I love that articulation. How would you maybe pastor the person? Like, cause I, I might've asked two questions in one, the person who's like, I've been pursuing this man. And I've, I've been pursuing an encounter with the spirit and it's been a couple of years. And, um, you know, I'm praying every day. I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to church, you know, I'm, I'm really seeking the work of the spirit, but I haven't seen this kind of dramatic manifestation. Am I in the center of God's will or am I doing something wrong? Like, how would you, for a person who's like genuinely seeking, yeah. but not seeing a subsequent experience, would you assure them that they are right where they need to be? Uh, like, how would you, how would you pastor that? Yeah, I, I would just say two things. One is on the one hand, keep pressing in no matter where you are, even if you had had some kind of dramatic experience, I would say, don't, don't camp there. Don't say there's nothing more beyond this. Keep pressing in, keep going further. On the other hand, I would also say to them that be cognizant of and aware of what God is working in you right now, that God is doing good stuff in you. And the fact that he's doing good stuff in you should make you grateful and faithful and claim his promises and his presence. Claim the presence of the Holy Spirit by faith in the same way that you claim salvation by faith. But keep pressing into more and more. Our God is a God of more. And and there there's Paul the Apostle says, I don't, I don't claim to have arrived. I'm 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 still on the journey. If Paul the Apostle and, you know, if Paul the Apostle needed to press in a little further, I'm thinking maybe it works for us. Hmm. Uh, talk to me about the assurance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, 
Paul talks about it in Romans 8, Galatians 4, I think it is. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We cry out, Abba, Father. What, what exactly is the assurance of the Holy Spirit, and how does that operate? Maybe even just kind of take us practically, like how does the Holy Spirit assure you? In fact, it's kind of funny at the top of the episode, how are you doing? Well, I'm saved. <laughs> so, I mean, praise God. We all know that we're saved. Uh, and the Holy Spirit bears witness of that. But how? How does that happen? And and just tell us more about that. Yeah, the there there is a difference between witness and assurance. Okay, the witness is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. He witnesses, His Spirit witnesses with our spirits that we are the children of God, and that gives us assurance. Now, now I am assured because of the testimony of the Holy Ghost. So. What I say to people always is the Holy Spirit is witnessing to you. He is witnessing to you all the time. Pray to be more sensitive to that and then and then do not doubt his witness. Don't don't cast dispersions on the character of the Holy Spirit. Receive his witness and claim it. He witness and bear witnesses with us. He is the assurance. You know, it's a it's a real estate term. It's the uh, it's the earnest money on the on the later and full transaction so the holy spirit is the is the earnest of the of the full transaction that we will receive uh later on when we step into heaven we will realize that the sweetest work of the holy spirit in our mortal bodies was the earnest money of the full transaction to come and mm. don't don't doubt the witness of the holy spirit and in that gradually our assurance grows not a cockiness but a confidence that says, yes, by the grace of God, I am a child of the King. Mm. I, I've got, I've got other, uh, I want to maybe wrap it up with this question. Cause I want to be honoring of your time. I know that you said you had till four thirty, so we or your time, your time five thirty. So I'm going to ask this question. Um, and if you feel, I don't want to share that, that's fine. You don't have to, um, you, you mentioned the first time you had this encounter with the spirit and how it was tremendous and life changing. When, when was the most recent time you had another experience like that? And would you say that, it, it's like a, it seems to be a bit of a bell curve early on in salvation. Like we were having these dramatic encounters and mm -hmm. the longer I've talked to people, they have sweet moments of intimacy with the Lord, it, but it seems as if maybe they don't have those kinds of tremendous experiences as frequently that those seem to happen maybe in the early days. Could you maybe walk us through some of that and what's been your experience? You know? Uh, yeah. I'd be curious. Yeah, that has been my experience. And I believe it is the testimony of, of people who are, um, more years, more years into the faith, veterans, if you will. I don't want to use some term that is uncomfortable, but I, I think it is the testimony of people. It's, it's like, um, it's like marriage. I don't want to be, I don't want to gross anybody out, but my honeymoon experience with my wife was pretty dramatic, pretty dramatic and wonderful and exciting. And uh, wow, <laughs> a discovery, you know, uh, that uh, now I'm 76. Our, our love life is a little bit different, but it, it's not, it's not worse. It's different. It's, it's sweet. She's my, my lover and still my lover in our seventies. And, and, uh, but it, but it is, it is different. And, uh, I think sometimes that explosive experience of Pentecost or call it whatever you will at the very beginning is 
often because of the resistance that we've had to receiving it. When that resistance is broken and we're now more eager, it's, it's sweeter, it, we gradually grow in it. But you ask if I've had subsequent experiences. Last Sunday, I went to hear my son preach and I was so deeply moved at one point in his sermon that it, it brought tears to my eyes and I, I felt God's breath on my neck and, and it was a very real experience, but I was not resistant to it. I wasn't fighting. I didn't have to be knocked in the floor uh, at that moment, but it was a very real subsequent experience. I felt the grace of God. Hmm. Praise God. No, that, that's wow. great. I, 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 again, want to honor your time. I want to make sure that we wrap up for that. Uh, for those Thank of you who are watching and you're saying, okay, well, what, where do I work? next steps. I would encourage you, whether you're maybe in the, the Pentecostal stream or not, two books, fantastic. Samuel Chadwick, Methodist mm. actually, right? Uh, uh, the Way of Pentecost, really good yes. book. Uh, I think it's palatable um, as far as like pursuing more of the Spirit. Uh, this is another one by maybe some of my more Reformed brothers, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Prove All Things. Uh, he has another one, uh, I think it's Joy Unspeakable, both he wrote at the end of his life talking about pursuing a subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit. Highly recommend those two books. Um, I find as someone who is no longer in the classical Pentecostal vein, and I, I don't necessarily use language of second blessing, um, I find that um, the tradition that I'm in, the charismatic tradition I, I'm in, um, can be lith lethargical, lethargic, not liturgic. We are liturgical, uh, but we are uh, we are we can get lazy in pursuing the work of the Spirit in our life, and we can kind of be kind of complacent and just I'm going to pursue this. But but the kind of desire to say like the church needs to be on fire, the church needs to be a place where the, the unbelievers can come in and say, surely God is among them, and to contend for more of that for the sanctification of His people. Certainly, our relationship with the Holy Spirit certainly, but also to put God's glory on display. Um, I don't, um, this is, uh, this is a song that I bring up every year or so. There's a song called the beetle King of the coconut estate. Uh, anyway, there's, it's an allegory. That's Michael, I've made song. Michael listen to it a couple times. He hates it. Uh, it think Pilgrim's I mean, progress, but fine. With I just wish you would talk about something other than the beetle King. It happens like, every once in a while. Well, okay. I love, I love this song because in the song, there is a line where, uh, the the beetle king gets furious with the philosopher and the warrior, and he's like, "I didn't ask what it seemed like; I asked what it is." And he said, "Like when you when you spoke about the fire, when you spoke about the light, there was neither a light or a heat in your words." Um, anyway, that's what I think we have to avoid as a church: is talking a lot about God, but not having him in our midst when we speak. Josh, so, I'm super... gonna I'm gonna create a meme that's like your face, and it says, "I want to honor your time. Let me talk to you about the beetle king." Oh, I. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> on that note, we thank you so much for joining us in this program. Uh, uh, Dr. Rutland, thank you so much for coming on. And we look forward to speaking with you in the near future. I want to let you get off to your, your finance meeting. So blessings, my friend. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Blessings. Okay, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this program. Uh, if you're out there, we want to make sure that you can uh, subscribe to the channel, hit the subscribe button, like the video, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find that information in the description of this video. We'll see you guys next time. Blessings. 
Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.